Why Catholic is made possible by generous patrons. If you're blessed by this podcast, consider supporting it by purchasing something from the Why Catholic merch shop on Etsy. Link is in the show notes. Original designs on sweatshirts, t-shirts, hats, decals, and more. Stay tuned to the end of this episode to hear how you can get a special discount. Thanks for supporting Why Catholic. Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, and you're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. If you're new, just as a little background, I was raised in a Baptist community and was a Protestant Christian for 39 years, an evangelical pastor for 11 of those years, and the co-founder of a ministry called Christianity is Jewish. At the age of 41, I came home to the Catholic Church. Every month or so, I like to break away from our typical topics to talk about a particular feast. And given that tomorrow is Pentecost, which we consider the birthday of the church, I want to focus on this really important day. If you listen to episode 40, you know that I'm a bit of a poet. I've actually taught poetry class in a high school setting. When people think of poetry, they often associate it with end rhyme. Once upon a midnight dreary while I pondered weak and weary. But really, poetry is all about the repetition of sounds and even ideas and themes, not just the rhyme at the end of a line in a stanza. Today, I want to introduce you to the poetry of God, the Creator and Redeemer, and His masterful work of genius called Pentecost. Allow me to do it in the form of a story by taking you back to the last pages of the book of Genesis. The Jewish patriarchs are known as three men named Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons with four different women. One of his favorites was his child, Joseph. And because his other sons were jealous of their father's favoritism, they beat up Joseph and sold him as a slave. Long story short, Joseph ended up in Egypt, and he ultimately became second in command behind Pharaoh. And because God revealed to Joseph that there was going to be a great famine, Joseph wisely stored grain during the abundant years to prepare for the years of drought. People from everywhere made their way to Egypt to buy grain, and one day Joseph looked out and saw that his brothers, his very own brothers who sold him into slavery years before, had come to Egypt to buy food. After a series of events, Joseph revealed his true identity to his brothers, they made amends, and Joseph invited all of his family to come and live in Egypt, where there was plenty of food. The book of Genesis ends there, and the book of Exodus opens by telling us that 400 years had passed. Jacob's 12 sons had families, and their families had families, and their families had families, and so on. And these Israelites, also called Hebrews, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had become a formidable population in Egypt, so much so that the Egyptians feared that they would overrun their country. So they enslaved them. And when the Israelites continued to multiply, the Egyptians committed infanticide, killing all Hebrew boys two years and under. One family decided to do everything possible to allow their son to live. They hid their young child for as long as they could. And when he was about three months old, they put him in a basket and floated him down the Nile River, praying that he would escape the slaughter. Pharaoh's daughter discovered the baby, and when she heard him crying, she had pity on him. She decided to keep the Hebrew boy, and as Providence would have it, paid the boy's own mother to be his wet nurse. She named the boy Moses, meaning drawn out of the water. While the Bible doesn't go into detail, we can speculate that Moses must have had a conflicted upbringing. On one hand, he was a prince of Egypt, an adopted child of Pharaoh's daughter. On the other hand, he was nursed and raised by his own Hebrew family. 
We know that Moses had a sense of his Hebrew identity because one day around the age of 40, when he saw an Egyptian slave master beating up a Hebrew slave, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When Pharaoh found out what Moses had done, he tried to have him killed. And Moses fled from Egypt to the land of Midian. For 40 years, Moses lived as an outcast far away from his family and home. He married a woman named Zipporah, the daughter of a Midian priest named Jethro. And for 40 years, Moses worked on Jethro's land as a shepherd. One day, while Moses was tending to the flock, he saw a mysterious bush on fire. But the bush wasn't incinerating into ash like you would expect a burning bush to do. Moses went over and suddenly heard a voice coming from this bizarre sight. The message? Go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go free. For all we know, this was Moses' first encounter with God. In fact, Moses asked the voice his name, and God told him, I am, or the sacred name in Hebrew, Yahweh. Moses went back to Egypt, and with the help of his biological brother Aaron, he confronted Pharaoh and gave him God's mandate, let the Hebrews go. Pharaoh, of course, refused. Uh, Why should he emancipate all these slaves? And and for what? Because this old 80-year-old man named Moses told him so? This was free labor for him. And so Pharaoh didn't comply. And God punished the Egyptians with a series of 10 plagues. Just before the last plague, God told Moses that he would deliver one final blow to the Egyptians, something so devastating that Pharaoh would finally release the Hebrews. That final plague was the death of every firstborn in the land of Egypt. At the same time that he gave this haunting message, God told Moses to institute a festival called Passover. On the 14th night of the first month, under the full moon, the Hebrews were to slaughter a male one-year-old lamb or goat that was free from any stain or blemish. They were to paint the animal's blood on the doorposts of each of their homes, and they were to cook and eat the animals. In addition, they were to eat the meal with bread made without yeast. This Passover celebration would become a tradition for future generations. In fact, of the seven Levitical feasts, Passover was considered a pilgrimage festival. Future generations would make their way to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover in the heart of Israel. That night after the Passover feast, as everyone was asleep in their homes, the Lord went throughout Egypt. On the homes that had blood on the door frames, he passed over them. But the homes that did not suffered the horrific death of the firstborn. The next day, Egypt woke up to devastation. All their firstborn were dead. Filled with sorrow and anger, Pharaoh told Moses to take the Hebrews and get out. And so all at once they left. Scholars believe that it wasn't just the blood descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who fled Egypt with Moses, but any of the slaves that were mixed in with the Hebrews. This was not a small group of refugees either. There were some 600,000 people, men, women, children, elderly, people weak from being malnourished and beaten. It must have been a painstaking process to get everyone out of Egypt. To help lead the Israelites to freedom, God appeared as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. This is called the Shekinah glory. Everything seemed to be going as planned, until the Hebrews realized that they were being followed by Pharaoh, who had suddenly changed his mind about their freedom. There was another problem. They couldn't go any further because they were on the shores of a giant sea. God told Moses to raise his staff, and suddenly the waters parted, and the Shekinah glory led them through the sea on dry ground. 
When Pharaoh and his army followed, the Shekinah glory turned into a dense fog to slow down the Egyptians and confuse them. When all of Israel had crossed the sea, Moses lowered his staff, and the waters fell on the Egyptians, and they all drowned. The Hebrews were finally free, but not free from problems. As they traveled, they went days without potable water. They encountered a battle with a group called the Amalekites, and they didn't hesitate to let Moses know they weren't happy with their so-called freedom. But God provided. He gave them manna and quail to eat. He poured water from a rock. And after about seven weeks of travel, he led them to the base of a mountain called Mount Sinai. God told Moses to come up to the mountain, but he warned everyone else to stay away. And who would want to go up to that mountain anyway? It looked ominous. A dense fog, violent storms, clashes of thunder and lightning, bursts of fire, sounds of fury. Fifty days after Israel had celebrated Passover, after that frightful night when God killed the firstborn of the Egyptians, Moses went up to the mountain to meet with God. And God gave him a list of laws for Israel to follow. Moses went down the mountain and dictated the laws to his people, and then he went back up. On his final trip up Mount Sinai, Moses was gone for 40 days, and the Hebrews began to wonder what happened to their leader, a man who many of them barely knew, who showed up one day and told them he had a mandate from God to lead them to freedom. Convinced Moses wasn't returning from the violent, stormy mountain, the people became restless and asked Moses' brother Aaron to make them gods that would lead them on the rest of their journey. Aaron agreed and collected jewelry, which he melted down and fashioned into a golden calf. This is your God who led you out of Egypt, he declared. After a lifetime of Egyptian polytheism and idol worship, this was the religious expression that the Hebrews were most familiar with. Meanwhile, Moses was at the summit of Mount Sinai having a very different experience, an intimate encounter with the Almighty God. And after 40 days, God inscribed the law on tablets of stone and handed them to Moses. This act marked a significant moment in Jewish history. This marked the moment when a group of former slaves, now nomads, held their own form of writing as well as laws. Instead of being subject to a foreign law, they had a law of their own. They were no longer just slaves, no longer just a group of vagabonds. They were a society and a people. Whether descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or of another lineage, this law now bound them together. That significant holy moment was interrupted by Israel's idolatrous orgy. God told Moses what was going on in the camp at the foot of the mountain, and he threatened to wipe them all out. But Moses interceded and descended the mountain only to witness exactly what God had described. There were the Hebrews dancing, worshiping, and making sacrifices to a golden calf. Furious, Moses slammed the stone tablets down on the ground, shattering them into pieces. Moses took hold of the golden calf, melted it in the fire, ground the dust into powder. Then he poured the powder into water and forced the people to drink it. He approached his brother Aaron to get an explanation. What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? He asked him. Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't even know what's happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. Moses stood at the entrance of the camp and declared, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. The Levites, which was Moses and Aaron's tribe, went to him. 
He told them to take a sword and go through the camp and kill brother, neighbor, and friend. And that's what they did. That day, about 3,000 people were slaughtered for their idolatry. For the Jewish people, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai was a pinnacle moment where they became their own people. Yahweh, as he identified himself in the burning bush, gave them the gift of religion, a legal system, and writing. This most important moment at Mount Sinai is commemorated by a significant Jewish feast called Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, because it occurred seven weeks after Passover. The Greek word for Shavuot is Pentecost, pente meaning 50, because it occurs 50 days or seven weeks after Passover. And like Passover, Shavuot is a pilgrimage festival for the Jewish people, where if possible, they are to travel to Jerusalem to commemorate the gift of God's law. Yet for many of Moses' contemporaries, God's law wasn't seen as a gift, but a condemnation. Many were stuck in their identity as Egyptians, reverting back to idolatry and complaining that they would be better off enslaved in their former land. What was meant to be the apex of Israel's freedom was marred and stained by idolatry, reducing the mighty Yahweh to a man-made golden calf. It's here that we begin to see a refrain that would be echoed through the words of the Jewish prophets. One day, God would write his law not on stone tablets, but on the hearts of his people. Whereas the law written on stone would condemn them, the law written on their hearts would transform them. Let's fast forward some 1,500 years. Many Jews had traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Only this Passover, something else significant had occurred. Jesus the Messiah was crucified and rose from the dead. Forty days later, he ascended into heaven. But just before he left, he told his followers to stay in Jerusalem because God was about to do something really big. About a week later, Jerusalem was once again filled with Jewish pilgrims, this time for Shavuot, or Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. Jesus' followers did exactly as Jesus had instructed. They were gathered together praying when all of a sudden there was a violent wind and what appeared as tons of fire descended on each of them. They suddenly began to preach and prophesy, except something strange was happening. All of those Jewish pilgrims who had traveled to Jerusalem from various parts of the world could understand these Christians in their native languages. God was doing what he had done 1,500 years before, this time on Mount Zion. There was a violent storm and fire and the gift of language, the word of God made intelligible to the people. At first, these pilgrims thought that these followers of Jesus were drunk, but it was only nine in the morning. Then Peter, whom Jesus had appointed as the leader of the disciples, stood up and made sense of it all. Quoting from the prophet Joel, he said, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Many of those pilgrims were there 50 days earlier on a very ominous Passover night. A storm, an earthquake, a lunar eclipse, reports of ghosts walking around Jerusalem. That was the night of the crucifixion. Many of them likely were there calling on Pilate to crucify Jesus. But Jesus was no longer dead. He had risen just as he promised. 
Peter finished his sermon with these words, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Suddenly, the people became convicted. What should we do, they asked Peter. Peter responded by saying, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. That day, 3,000 people were baptized and received salvation. This is the poetry of Pentecost. Do you see the parallels of this story? Moses is drawn out of a basket on the shores of the Nile River by the king's daughter. Peter was called out of his boat by Jesus the king's son on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. The first Passover included the sacrifice of unblemished male lambs, where the Hebrews put the lamb's blood on the door frames to escape the death of the firstborn. At the crucifixion, Jesus, the perfect lamb of God, was sacrificed. His blood splattered on the beams of the cross. His sacrifice provides salvation for all mankind, for all who will believe. Moses led the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea where they found freedom on the other side. As Peter explained to the crowds, the way of salvation begins through the waters of baptism. Fifty days after the first Passover, the Hebrews camped at the base of Mount Sinai and Moses ascended the mountain in a raging storm of lightning and fire. There God dictated the law to Moses and wrote it down on stone tablets, and Moses interpreted the law to the people. The people were no longer slaves of Egypt and under Pharaoh's rule, whether descendants of Jacob or otherwise. They gained a new identity as the nation of Israel under God's law. Fifty days after Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus' followers were gathered on the mountain known as Jerusalem, when all of a sudden a violent wind rushed through the room and tons of fire descended on them, and they began to interpret God's message in languages that the people could understand. Instead of God writing his law on tablets, he wrote it in the hearts of his people through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And whereas on the first Pentecost, Moses delivered judgment and death to 3,000 people, the Pentecost following Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, Peter led 3,000 people to salvation. This is the poetry of Pentecost, and God is a poet without equal. Thank you for joining me for Why Catholic. Be sure to subscribe to Why Catholic wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also subscribe to my Substack site and get the next episode in your email inbox. As a subscriber, you get a special discount code to the Why Catholic Etsy store. If you've been blessed by this podcast and you're feeling generous, there's also a way to financially support it and patrons get some extra perks. To become a free subscriber or a patron, just go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Also join me on Instagram at whycatholicpodcast, all one word. Thanks again for listening. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic. God bless you.